Blog Talk Radio. Jim Hart, the host of this show a few years back, and an Eastern Airline executive would say, holy blue Sunoco, folks. We've got great guests, history, and memories by former employees of the airlines. They're all included during these broadcasts, even guests from light years away who pay us a visit every now and then. My name is Neil Holland. I'm a retired captain with Eastern Airlines and producer of the show, and if you're listening to the show on the website, you can uh, you can listen to us there at 
blogtalkradio.com. That's blogtalkradio.com forward slash Captain Eddie. That's C-A-P-T-E-D-D-I-E, Captain Eddie. And would like to call in and talk with our guest, then you can simply dial on your phone, your smartphone, 213-816-1611. That's 213-816-1611. Then I'll see your number on, the, on my producer's board and open your microphone, which is your phone, to bring you into the conversation. And let me repeat that number again, 213-816-1611. Better yet, why not listen to the show on your smartphone and you'll already be ready. You'll be right there on the producer's board ready with your comments. You know, we're a a satellite-based radio show and it's carried around the world. We've identified 50 countries, over 50 countries that listen in regularly. Uh, maybe even a few galaxies, too, uh, at the end of this show. And last week for the first time, uh, actually the last two weeks, we've had South Africa that has tuned us in. And we've been doing this now for over 11 years. And, and if you'd like to listen to any of our previous shows, they're all archived. There are nearly 700 of them now. And you can go to the web address that uh, I just gave you. I'll repeat it again, blogtalkradio.com forward slash Captain Eddie, C-A-P-T-E-D-D-I-E. And choose any of the shows from this show all the way back nearly 12 years ago when it all began. Now, uh, right, Margaret? You were there at the very beginning. (laughs) That's right, Captain Neal. I was right there with you nearly 12 years ago. I can't believe how time has actually flown. And I just want to make a a comment about Jim Hart, our former co-host. Jim, we have not forgotten you, and your spirit is always going to be with us on this show. Thanks for those comments, Margaret. And uh, we've uh, had a few of our hosts that have since taken that trip west, and we miss them all that have been on our show as a host. They've all done a great job. Um, Brenda Chabot uh, normally is with us as a host every uh, Saturday, and uh, she's a former flight attendant with Ward Air. She's not able to be with us as a medical problem with her uh, puppy or her uh, live-in furry friend. And uh, so she's not going to be with us today. And and also Jim Hart, I mean, uh, Jim Hart, Jim Holder, Captain Jim Holder. His son arrives today from, I guess, over in Germany because uh, he's now officially out of the out of the military. He he's retired with the full rank of Colonel, Colonel Mark Porter. So, Jim, if you're listening in, I hope uh uh, that uh, Mark is there with you, and I understand you're having a big to-do, and uh, that's great that you're giving your son this welcome home and uh, and uh, for his uh, future career, whatever it's going to be and wherever he's going to live. So we'll miss you, but we hope you will both, uh, Brenda, you and Jim, will be back with us next week if you can. And we have with us to take this show uh, into uh, the Twilight Zone, I guess we would say, is Margaret Bars over in the Pensacola area. Hello, Margaret, and is Miss Luann with you today? 
Hey, again, Neil. And, of course, Luann is here. You know she would not miss this show. <laughs> okay. Well, I see others on my producer's board as well, and which we hope uh, will be chatting with us during the day's show. Now, uh, I want uh, you to, uh, Margaret, since Brenda's not going to be with us, I want you to start our show off and uh, tell us what we're uh, in for today, and I'll let you take it away. But first of all, let me put on the little background mu music for what you're about to say, okay? Here we go. Let's see okay. if you can hear this. Go ahead. Well, Neil, as you said in your opening monologue, our show is from out of this world. After nearly three quarters of a century, we still do not have positive proof of what our show is about today. So like many unsolved events, we'll present what we do know from those that have reported unidentified flying objects that are known as UFOs. Now, in popular culture, the term UFO, or unidentified flying object, refers to a suspected alien spacecraft, although its definition encompasses many unexplained aerial phenomena. UFO sightings have been reported throughout recorded history and in various parts of the world, raising questions about life on other planets and whether, in fact, extraterrestrials have visited the Earth. They became a major subject of interest and the inspiration behind numerous films and books following the development of rocketry after World War II. Now, the first well-known UFO sighting occurred in 1947 when businessman Kenneth Arnold claimed to see a group of nine high-speed objects near Mount Rainier in Washington while flying his small plane. He estimated the speed of the crescent-shaped objects as several thousand miles per hour and said they moved like saucers skipping on water. Well, in the newspaper report that followed, it was mistakenly stated that the objects were saucer-shaped, hence the term flying saucer. Now, that same year uh, Arnold, that Arnold saw the flying objects, a rancher named W.W. Mac Brazil came across the mysterious 200-yard-long wreckage near an Army airfield in Roswell, New Mexico. Local papers reported it was the remains of a flying saucer. However, the U.S. military issued a statement saying it was just a weather balloon, though the newspaper photographs suggested otherwise. So the flames of conspiracy were further fanned in the 1950s when dummies with latex skin and aluminum bones that looked eerily like aliens fell from the sky across New Mexico and were hurriedly picked up by military vehicles. Now, to those who believed in the earlier Roswell sightings, this seemed like a government cover-up. Before the Air Force, these dummy drops were a way to test new ways for pilots to survive falls. But 50 years later, the military issued a subsequent statement admitting that the Roswell wreckage was part of Project Mogul, a top-secret atomic espionage project. Now, our show today brings into discussion only the year 1948 and what's been reported in that year alone. So uh, I think we'll go ahead and get started uh, and give our listeners our first sightings back in June of 1948. 
that um, oh, Captain Neil, I'm going to interrupt. Luann, as usual, does want to give her account of her UFO encounter and her pilot, and I'm just going to let her take over if that's okay. Yeah, but uh, before she takes over, uh, we have with us uh, Jim uh, Harris. He's out in Texas. And uh, Jim, uh, I want you to open your microphone here, say hello to the folks, because they'll be hearing from you later on the show. Jim Harris? Hello, folks. This is Captain Jim Harris in the Dripping Springs, Texas. I'm about 20 miles west of Austin at a pretty good spot. Uh, I like living here. I'm looking out the door here at the birds and squirrels and everything else. It's so pretty out. Way hot, but way nice. So well, welcome, everyone. Well, if you see a UFO in your backyard, now shout. Uh, okay. <laughs> oh, I'll probably do more than that. <laughs> All right. Okay, I'm going to turn it back over to Lou Ann and see what she's got to say. Lou Ann, you're on the air. Okay. Hey there, Captain Jim Harris. I just wanted to share this UFO encounter. Now, we at Kentucky Fire didn't talk about this for a long time, but since you're doing the show, I think we're just going to go ahead and share it with you. Now, last year, our little red plane uh, had a special charter flight out of Hazard, Kentucky to Cincinnati, Ohio. Now, we had 10 male passengers on board. And we were nervous anyhow because they were all dressed in black suits and black gloves and black hats. We found out later, though, they was just undertakers out for a big city night on the town. But anyway, 20 minutes out, we were suddenly blinded by an intense white light. Now, our new pilot, Earl, who was a former crop duster pilot, he got really mad and he yelled out, hey, don't you big city airplane pilots know you're supposed to hit the dimmer switch as a courtesy to us little planes when you're flying close to us? Well, to our surprise, a big old white pod of some sort, some alien thing, came up right beside us, danced all around us. Earl tried, but he couldn't outmaneuver it. And then all of a sudden it passed us, turned around, headed straight towards us on a collision course. Well, being a Kentucky boy, Earl opened up his communication channel and yelled, so you want a game of bluff, do you? Well, this old Kentucky country boy knows all about playing that chicken game with vehicles. You're in my neck of the woods now, aliens, so let's do it. I'll be you, Huckleberry. Well, them aliens must have heard that because they sped up and Earl floored it. We was flying straight at each other, and, yell, and Earl was a yelling, come on, come on. But at the last second, that alien crab shot straight up, and he was safe, or we was safe. But Earl could still be heard yelling to us, hey, that's how we Kentucky troublesome creek boys play. We ain't scared of nothing. But you know something, Captain Neal, as scary as all that was, I think... I'll go ahead and admit, I kind of have a crush on Earl ever since that happened. But anyway, <laughs> hope you guys enjoyed that show, and that was the truth. As sure as my name is Lou Ann, that's the truth. <laughs> okay. Okay, Lou Ann, thank you for that fascinating, fascinating story. Uh, but to get a little serious, um, 
I want to talk about another Kentucky UFO incident. And uh, actually, uh, one of my neighbors in Kentucky uh, gave me this story, and so I checked it out. But on January 7, 1948, 25-year-old Captain Thomas Mantell, a Kentucky Air National Guard pilot, died in the crash of his P-51 Mustang fighter plane near Franklin, Kentucky. He was sent in pursuit of an unidentified flying object, and the event was among the most publicized early UFO incidents. It's interesting to note, though, that Captain Mantell was actually uh, a U.S. Air Force officer in World War II and obviously a World War II vet. He was awarded the Distinguishing Flying Cross for Courageous Action in the War. So even at the age of 25, he was an experienced pilot, which I think adds to the story. Now, on that fateful or fateful day, rather, um, Godman Army Airfield at Fort Knox, Kentucky, received a report from the Kentucky Highway Patrol of an unusual aerial craft uh, in the air. And even uh, a sergeant who uh, was in the control tower at Fort Knox uh, confirmed that. And through binoculars, uh, he said it appeared to have a red border at the bottom. And it was a flaming red cone trailing a gaseous green mist. Now, actually, four of those uh P-1 or 51 uh, Mustangs uh, were in the air at the time, and they were told to approach uh, the object. One pilot gas was low, so he returned. The other two pilots accompanied uh, Mantell, and uh, they decided that it was too dangerous, so they left. But Mantell ignored suggestions that the pilots should level their altitude and try to more clearly see the object. And... um, Sadly, he continued to climb, and according to the U.S. Air Force, when he passed 25,000 feet, he blacked out from the oxygen or lack of oxygen, and his plane crashed. His watch stopped at 3.18, and the rumors abounded after that. So I thought that was a very fascinating study uh, uh, done about him. And then, you know, there's an old saying that – Once is a happening, twice is a coincidence, and three times is a pattern. So I have another uh, incident, and this one occurred in North Dakota. And the similarities to the one in Kentucky are really interesting. So approximately 10 uh, months later, there was an incident, and they now label it the Gorman dog site. And it involved a 27-minute air encounter between another veteran World War II fighter pilot named George Gorman. And this was in Fargo, North Dakota, on October 1st, 1948. And like Mantell, Gorman was also a 25-year-old former fighter pilot, served as a second lieutenant in the North Dakota Air National Guard. And he was on a flight patrol with his P-51 Mustang that same um, date of October 1st, 1948, and he was with other National Guard airmen. 
And he decided to stay up in the air uh, while the others went back to base. And and at about 9 o'clock or 9 p.m., he was going to land. And he came upon what he thought were the taillights of another craft, even though the tower had no other object on the radio, or the radar, rather, and the radio. So Gorman pulled up his plane, came to about 100,000 yards of it, and suddenly the uh, UFO pulled into a sharp left bank, and he tried to maneuver around it, so they went back and forth. And for 27 minutes, he could not catch up with it. But it would come straight at him, and then veer off to the left or the right. And he noticed no sound, no exhaust trail, or no odor uh, from that. And he, like uh, Captain Mandel, at some point blacked out temporarily, but fortunately for him, he was able to survive that, and he landed the plane. So those two similarities, both young, 25-year-olds, National Guard, and also their planes, those P-51 Mustangs, I think that's eerily similar. Does anyone else think that or want to talk about that? Oh, absolutely. They are similar. And uh, the, the year, 1948, uh, just a year after the first recorded uh, uh, recording of a sighting uh, that was made in 1947, uh, at least my, that's what my research tells me, um, mm-hmm. Margaret and Jim, Jim Harris, uh, we're going to talk about one that uh, especially the Eastern Airlines pilots know about and Eastern Airlines folks know about, and uh, that uh, took place uh, on July 24th, uh, 74 years ago, tomorrow it happened. So I'm going to turn it over to Jim Harris. Uh, and Jim, Captain Jim, uh, you go ahead and tell us about uh, about uh, the the one the first officer. Both of us had flown with him a few times. So uh, we know uh, John Witted, and uh, so we'll talk about that one. Tell us what happened, uh, Jim. Okay, thank you. Uh, this is one that Brenda referred to in her opening remarks. It was 74 years ago on tomorrow's, on tomorrow's date of July the 24th. We have taken the following article written by Greg Dowder and published in EAL Word, the official newsletter of the Silver Falcons. Captain J.B. Witted, this is the name he preferred to be known by, and most pilots, by most pilots in the Eastern are Captain Witted. Captain Clark Ch- Child referred to Shipe. This is their story. Whatever occurred at 2.45 a.m. on the morning of 24 July 1948 and in the skies over southwest Alabama not only shocked and stymied the witnesses that jolted the U.S. government into a top-secret investigation, the results of which were ultimately destroyed, Folks, that's over 74 years ago, and we're still scratching our heads. Let's go on with an accounting that to many of us from a reliable source. The skies were mostly clear, and the moon was bright, and the pre-dawn hours as pilot Clarence Childs and co-pilot John B. Whitted flew their Eastern Airlines DC-3, a twin-inch propeller plane at 5,000 feet on route from Houston to Atlanta. The aircraft had 20 passengers, 19 of them asleep at that hour. 
It was routine domestic flight, one of many skies at early morning. What the two pilots and their wide-awake passengers saw in the sky about 20 miles southwest of Montgomery, Alabama, did more than startle them. It will reportedly become the catalyst for highly classified Air Force documents suggesting that some unidentified flying objects are spaceships from other worlds, a tipping point in the UFO history. Charles described what he saw in an official statement about a week later. It was clear, and there were no wings present, that it was powered by some jet or other type of power, shooting planes from the rear some 50 feet. There were two rows of windows that indicated an upper and lower deck, and from inside these windows, a very bright light was glowing. Underneath the ship was a blue glow of light. He estimated he had watched the ship for about 10 seconds before it disappeared in some white clouds, and it was lost from view. Whitted offered a similar description in his official statement. The office was cigar, object was cigar-shaped and seemed to be about 100 feet in length. The fuselage appeared to be about three times the circumference of a B-29 fuselage. It had two rows of windows, an upper and a lower. The windows were very large and seemed to be square. They're, they were white with light, which seemed to be caused by some type of combustion. I asked Captain Charles what he had seen, and he said he didn't know. As the pastor who was awake at the time, Clarence McKeeby of Columbus, Ohio, corroborated the pilot's account that an unusually bright object had streaked past his window, but he, but he wasn't able to describe it beyond that. Both pilots made drawings of the craft they believed they had seen and provided further details in newspaper and radio interviews some just tw- hours after sighting. The Atlanta Constitution headlined a July 25 account. Atlanta pilots report wingless sky monster. In that article, Charles described what sounded like an uncomfortably close encounter as the object could be coming straight at them. We veered to the left and it veered to its left and it passed about 700 feet to our right and about 700 feet above us. Then as pilot had seen us and wanted to board us, it pulled, it pulled, it pulled it up with a menace burst of flame out its rear and zoomed up into the clouds. Uh, Charles and Whitted weren't the only ones who baffled by what they had seen. As for comment, William Allen, the president of Boeing Aircraft, told the United Press he was pretty sure it was not one of our planes and that he knew of nothing being built in the U.S. that matched that description. General George C. Kennedy, the chief of SAC Command, Strategic Air Command, what uh, what was responsible for most American nuclear strike forces during the Cold War, told the Associated Press, the Army has anything like that. I wish we did. Whenever Childs and Whitted addressed theirs, witnessed, theirs was far from isolated instant. There have been scores of reported UFO sightings in the years just previous, but Air Force investigators took this one more seriously than most. For one thing, both men were highly regarded pilots who had served as Air Force officers during World War II. McKelvey, the pastor who was also a solid citizen and an Air Force veteran as well, for another, the pilots had gotten what seemed to be an unusually close look 
at a strange ob- at the strange object they described. For all those reasons, the child's quitted account, as it came to be known, reported reportedly caused the Air Technical Intelligence Center to draft a top secret document with the deceptively bland title EES estimate of the situation. Edward Ruppert, an Air Force officer and the first head of the famous Project Blue Book study of UFO phenomena, claimed that he had seen, claimed to have seen a copy. The situation was UFOs. He wrote the estimate was that they were interplanetary. According to Rubelt. Report traveled up the U.S. Air Force chain of command all the way to General Hoyt S. Vandenberg, the chief of staff. The general wouldn't buy any interplanetary vehicles, Rupert wrote. A group from the ATIC went to, went to the Pentagon to boast their position but had no luck. The chief of staff could not be convinced. Uh, Brenda? Traveling to another dimension. A dimension. Well, Margaret, Margaret I will talk yeah. about that just a minute. Oh. Uh, you know, in '47, I did some research and I, I asked what was the earliest reported sightings, and it was uh, from a guy in 1947, a year earlier than the one in, uh, that we are talking about, 1948. Uh, during the show, and it's kind of uh, strange that there were a lot of sightings in 47, but uh, lots of them in 48. As a matter of fact, there were so many of them. We picked just a few of them out for the show today, and uh, matter of fact, there there are quite a bit, uh, quite a few of them, and all over the world. I've got a uh, area code 239 before we get into uh, some of the other sightings, uh, Margaret, uh, I want to say, who is area code 239? Do we have a listener there? That's, 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 yes, this is David in Fort Myers. Hey, David, how are you doing? Doing good, doing good. How are you doing? <laughs> good. You see a UFO out your window right now? <laughs> no, I'm in the middle of a car. I'm going to a boat ramp, and it's uh, trying to beat a storm. Oh, so well, we're having we're having a storm thing. over my roof right now. So if if we uh, <laughs> drop off the line, you'll know what happened. It's an electrical storm here too. So uh, okay, yeah, we're pretty much saturated. Uh, just uh, another question for you, David. You were you with Eastern or uh, just uh, uh, how did you get to yeah. our? No, I was at with Eastern in, in Gainesville, Florida, and also Fort Myers, Florida, from 1979 to 1991. Wow, wow, yeah. I landed 727 in Gainesville years ago, and uh, seems like years ago. And, uh, yeah, I probably ran into you there. Were you in flight operations, I'm sure? Oh, yeah, and in Gainesville, it was a sea station. We did everything. So if you went oh, into okay. the operations, you, you met everybody. Yeah, yeah, okay. Well, good seeing you again, David, and I uh, yes, hope you yes. can visit, visit our show often and uh, add your comments. If you have anything that you want to talk about, especially if it's UFOs today, we, we welcome your comment. Okay. You know, I, was, I was really interested in about Eastern Airline benefits, as I was really interested in about today's show, but um, I don't know if you're going to have anybody on about that today or not. Ye- 
Yeah, no, not today, uh, but uh, I will get uh, – I think I talked to you before, uh, Michael and Saul. Right. And, uh, yeah, and uh, let me see if I can get Michael to give me a, a website or, or a, an address to that you can talk directly to someone that will tell you about where to uh, get that information, David. Oh, that would be great. I appreciate that. Okay, good. Okay, I'm going to turn – all right, I'm going to turn it back over to Margaret. Margaret, and you can tell us uh, some of these sightings and uh, you and Jim both. And uh, let's take it away, Margaret. Go ahead. Okay, I just wanted to say uh, also it's storming really badly here in Pensacola and a lot of thunder and all of that. So it's interesting. Maybe the UFOs are coming after us, Neil. You never they know. Don't fl- they don't find weather likes outside right now. <laughs> Oh, that's good to know. Well, you don't know that, though. They're, They're very like ducks. far advanced. <laughs> They're like ducks. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Oh, I see. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, here are a few of the sightings in various parts of the country uh, in 1948. So about mid-1948 in Erie, Pennsylvania, an object was observed. It departed by rapidly flying straight up until lost inside. And one silver oval object was observed by one male witness at a lake for about 18 seconds. No sound was heard. Moved at a rapid pace west, then rapidly to the east, parallel to the shoreline of Lake Erie. And when it reached position over the city of Erie, uh, Pennsylvania, it abruptly shot straight up three times faster. And then another location, Detroit, Michigan, An object was observed by several witnesses for 12 seconds. In eastern, or eastern, excuse me, Pennsylvania, objects were observed. Electromagnetic effects were noted. Several objects were observed by two male witnesses for a few minutes. And then another location in Rogers, Arkansas. Unusual objects were sighted that had unconventional appearance, aerobatic performance, Three blue-green balls were observed by seven witnesses in a yard for 30 minutes, but no sound was heard. The bouncing balls moved vertically, veered off horizontally, regained bobbing motion, no vapor trail, no exhaust, no noise. And then again in mid-1948 in Newtown, Connecticut, three objects about 300 feet across were observed by six witnesses. So, Captain Jim, do you have some more? Yes, I do. Here's one from Wisconsin, mid uh, mid 1948. A location I think is pronounced Poinette, Wisconsin. Forty feet diameter silver colored disc paced car came within a few feet. When another car came along, the object ascended several hundred feet, then hovered. Circular rim spun around the middle portion. Uh, July of 1948 location, uh, Asatin, A-S-O-T-I-N, Washington. Two objects were observed by three witnesses for two minutes. Uh, July of 48 location, Pasco, Washington. Black disc dives, climbs away fast near nuclear facility. A flying disc was observed 
one black disc was observed by four male witnesses near a nuclear test site for two minutes. That's a private pilot incident. Uh, 4 July 1948, located in Camden, New Jersey. One object was observed by a male witness at a park. Margaret, how about give me a few more for that year? Sure, Captain Jim. Now, on July 4th, 1948, in North uh, Longmont, Colorado, revolving silver circular objects soared upward at terrific speed, observed by two witnesses on a farm for 12 seconds. July 9th, in Alaska, two Air Force officers reported approximately 20 disks or spears milling around in formation and making a jet-like sound. And then in July 9th in Osborne, Ohio, AMC Technical Intelligence Division officer and pilot, Lieutenant CWG of Mexico 4, saw to the north about 70 degrees elevation a luminous yellowish-white object traveling east to west that estimated three to 4,000 feet, about 500 to 600 miles per hour, illuminated at regular intervals first one to two seconds, then dark three seconds, lit one to two seconds again, dark three seconds, then lit one to two seconds again, disappearing to the west, slightly above the horizon, north of Patterson Field. Again, no sound or trail. The moon was uh, one quarter illuminated, seen rising to the uh, west-southwest, actually setting to the west at 270 degrees, a 21 degrees elevation, 15% illuminated. Then another report, July 10, 1948, Santa Maria, Azores, Portugal. Electromagnetic effect, all clocks in the airport stopped working. When a white cylinder-shaped UFO passed over at 12,000 feet altitude, many witnesses. An object was observed, electromagnetic effects were noted, one white cylinder was observed by numerous witnesses at an airport for 45 minutes. No sound was heard. You know, Mr. Producer, that one was worth a PZ sound clip, don't you think? You got it. <laughs> I think that was great. <laughs> Now, on July 13, 1948, in Concord, Massachusetts, an object was sighted that had an appearance and performance beyond the capability of known earthly aircraft. One object was observed by one experienced male witness. Now, on July 15, in Alayarvi, Finland, a large, silent, glowing metallic cigar flew west rapidly to the east, had no wings. A cigar-shaped object was observed. One luminous cigar-shaped cigar object was observed also by two military witnesses in a residential area for over one minute. No sound was heard. Army major incident. July 17th, uh, location five miles south of San Acacia Dam, New Mexico, 4.50 p.m. to Kirtland AFB sergeants on a fishing trip with their families 
saw a group of seven aluminum circular, possibly spherical, spherical objects approach from the south at 20,000 feet, pass overhead at 1,500 miles per hour. If the altitude was correct, that would be five degrees second angular velocity, at first appearing like snub-nosed jet fighters of unknown type uh, shift, and they were shifting rather from V formation to L formation to circular formation to no regular formation, at which point a regular pulsating flashing light appeared in the group at 30 degrees from zenith to the north, and this oblique angle, the objects did not appear circular, no noise or trail, possibly 10, 30 seconds. July 19th, Trenton, New Jersey. Now, this one is really interesting. Accordingly, the witness woke late at night to see five little men carrying his mother down the stairs. He tried to get up and go after her, but he was warned by one of the little men who told him to stay in bed or else he would die. Frightened, he stayed in his bed, but a bright light coming through the window made him look outside. Now, outside, he saw these uh, little men and his mother walking to the light. He didn't remember going to sleep, so he says, but then he woke up. His mother greeted him, told him that his dog, Rusty, had jumped out the window and accidentally hung himself, possibly in an attempt to chase an intruder. Now, on July 20th, this was at Alameda, Andalusia, Spain, 17-year-old shepherd Lucas uh, Del Pozo, I hope I'm pronouncing that correct, uh, was guarding his family watermelon patch, suddenly noticed what appeared to be a whirlwind appearing within that patch, and the dust or dirt covered the whole field, and the witness feared the crop had been lost. Now, as he approached the field, he was surprised to see a large metallic bowl-shaped object sitting in the middle of that field that seemed to come from out of nowhere. And from the object, a short humanoid figure with long dangling arms and short legs emerged. The humanoid had small beady black eyes, slick black, or sick, slick back black hair, that's hard to say, that appeared glued to his head, small fingers, and moved around in strangely coordinated moves. It wore a tight, fitting mustard-colored overall. So afraid, the witness fled the area and did not see the humanoid or the object depart. And then on July 20th, in uh, Amhen Gelderland, Netherlands, a cigar-shaped object, two rows of windows, was seen four times. Around 1.30 in the afternoon, it moved through the sky very fast, was observed by two witnesses on a farm briefly. And then July 24th, Blackstone, uh, United Kingdom, one luminous cigar-shaped object was observed by two experienced male witnesses briefly. No sound was heard. Glowing cylindrical object leaves trail, moved at terrific speed, heading rapidly to the southwest. And then on, we have already described um, several others. So I'll just go to a, uh, which was, in fact, on July 24th, as we talked about the child's witted case. So uh, back to you, producer. 
Okay, uh, you know, it's very interesting to hear about these incidents. Now, I tend to believe the ones that just describe the machine uh, or whatever it was, saucer or cigar-shaped, and it seems like most of them are describing it as cigar-shaped. And now what I can't uh, go along with as far as uh, I do believe, by the way, I'll admit it over the air, that I do believe there are uh, things that have visited this earth, this planet, and uh, it, it's just too vast not to have, in my opinion. But um, uh, at any rate, some of these things about the uh, the aliens that are coming out and taking mothers into the ship and what have you, uh, that I don't know. That might be a little bit uh, hyper-imagination. Uh, that uh, was carried away, but uh, the the incidents, especially the witted uh, Child's witted case, uh, uh, and and Jim Harris, you know, uh, you've flown with uh, JB Witted, I believe, haven't you? I never did. He was on the DC nine. I was Feb twenty seven. Okay, okay. I used to uh, fly with him. I, who he was. Yeah, I used to fly with him when he when I first came with the company. He was on the Convair four forty. And uh, I used to fly that old twin-engine prop airplane with JB, and I didn't even know it until I did. Then flew it. The next time I flew with JB, uh, Witted was uh, on the 727. Uh, he had checked out, and I had moved up to the Boeing 727, and we had many flights together. Great, great guy. A lot of people didn't understand some of the actions that he did with operations and so forth, but. But I really, I really believed everything that he told me about uh, that case. He didn't like to talk about it unless you actually uh, pinned him down to it. And you know, sometimes flying, flying a cargo flight or flying a long trip out to Seattle or some, somewhere, yeah, you, you got to talk about something. And so, um, and then, then the last time I spoke with JB was at a REPA convention, and uh, then I asked him again. I said, uh, "Do you still?" believe in uh, what you saw, you and Shipe Childs. Uh, he was the captain of the DC-3, and he said, uh, yes, yes, I do. And um, he said that he saw what he saw. And um, so it, it's just uh, I, I, some of these guys that are reporting, especially nowadays, uh, are in the towers, control towers, and uh, airliners uh, that are flying night flights and uh, during the day it doesn't seem uh, to make any difference to these objects as far as their appearances uh, are concerned their sightings uh, daytime and also during the evening so uh, Margaret you got a few more um, sure so to continue uh, with these, there was, as Captain Neal had said earlier, there were just so many of these reported uh, in that year. So on July 24th in Robbins Air Force Base in Georgia, Walter C. Uh, Massey, a member of Civilian Alert, observed a squash-shaped object with flaming exhaust headed south at terrific speed. Seven other witnesses witnesses from Augusta, Georgia, also observed the object and on BB microfilm. In none of these instances does a meteorological or astronomical explanation suffice to explain the sightings. And then we still have a few more here. 
Uh, on July 24, 1948, in Tulsa, Oklahoma, a hovering object was observed. One light was observed by one witness for a few seconds, uh, Lascombe, Silverar, and Petty. Bright light, pulsating light, hovered, moved away when the pilot headed toward it, then disappeared. Same day, July 24th, Rain, Louisiana. One box-shaped object was observed by two witnesses in a residential area for over a minute. Wingless box with windows flew east to west, wrote a letter to Project Blue Book, teacher incident. July 25th, Yamaka, are you... I don't know how to pronounce that. <laughs> I think I pronounced Yakima. it. Right. Uh, Yakima. Yeah. Well, Yakima. There you go. Washington. Sorry about that, folks. A silvery moon-sized flying blob, and that's where my eye went. I went directly to the blob, was seen by hundreds of witnesses over the city. Hundreds of calls flooded into the CAA office concerning the flying object. And again, on July 25th, and uh, in sea border, Virginia, a cigar-shaped object was observed. One luminous cigar-shaped object was observed by one witness for over one minute. So, uh, Captain Jim, do you have a few more of these? Uh, Jim, yes, I'm going to – yeah, hey, uh, we've got a Go lot ahead. of these. And, and instead of uh, – I think uh, our listeners are getting, uh, uh, getting the, the message here about uh, – what these reports are all about, but uh, we're going to kind of skip some of these and, and talk about some of the things that uh, were recently sent to us, if you don't mind, Jim. I'm going to, no, it I'm doesn't going to, bother me at all. Let's go. Yeah, well, we're going to go down to what uh, some folks that have sent in their sightings on a Facebook uh, question that I post, I posted on Facebook. Uh, about uh, if they had seen, uh, if they had uh, made any observation of a UFO. And here's one from John Adams that I received just yesterday. And he said, uh, I have never seen any UFO while flying, but I have seen several strange objects since. While enjoying my patio late one evening on two different occasions, in clear skies and no moon out, an object brighter than Venus, he says. I estimate it was close to a few thousand feet in altitude. It was hard to determine as it didn't know exactly the size of the object, but it stopped as if as it was directly overhead, and it was followed by three bright, bright flashes at two-second intervals then continued on an eastbound flight path. The three flashes lit up the entire surrounding atmosphere. Then after a few seconds, this object, after the stop, continued on toward the east, and satellites don't stop, or they would drop and have seen other strange things also. But uh, that was uh, his comment. And also Tom Vance uh, sent... Uh, me a, a a post that said that uh, that ought to be an interesting show is what we're doing today now now that the USG I guess he means United States government big cover-up is becoming ever more obvious James Fox the phenomenon movie is excellent I've seen four sightings 
1963 and four, 64 rather, and two in, 19, in mid 1970s. And then I got one from Dan Leonardi, Leonardi, and he said, I remember in Toronto, I found a link in the company computer that had all of the UFO reports that have been recorded. And I asked the pilot about that, and he got very angry and asked me how I had access to that information. And the next day, that was no longer available. And... Um, my comment to that was, hey, Dan, try just putting in all sightings in your search on the Internet. And I did it for 1948 and got so many, I had to edit out many and, and go on with well, what you have just uh, heard, some of the ones you've just heard today. So uh, that's our discussion with UFOs. And, again, that's my feelings about it. I don't know whether you guys, Margaret, you and, uh, and uh, Jim Harris may want to make your comment, or maybe not, uh, about what your belief is. Uh, I, I'm such an age, I can, I can just uh, say what I want to say, and people can call me crazy, <laughs> and that's okay. That's all right. They've got a right to call me whatever they want yeah. to call me. Just call me to eat dinner. And as the old <laughs> expression goes. And uh, But, uh, Margaret, you have any comments about... Uh, about believing any well, of this stuff? Well, I, I find it really interesting. There's a lot of things that are almost too much to be coincidences. I mean, with all of these sightings. Now, I've never seen a UFO, but there are a lot of strange, unexplained things in the world. And I, I don't know whether to or not, but... Uh, uh, I've been in Pensacola now for just a few months, and I still have my little farm in Kentucky. But um, back in March of this year, there were three occasions at night when everything went totally silent. I mean, dogs didn't bark. You couldn't hear crickets. You couldn't hear anything. It was deadly quiet, and this happened three times. And there was rumors that an alien spacecraft had uh, come about. I did not see any lights, but some of my neighbors uh, claimed that they did. Now, either it was aliens or Bigfoot or something like that, <laughs> some apex predator. But I don't know. And, I mean, there was a lot of talk about, um, you know, the possibility that an alien aircraft had um, sort of crash back there, but other than that, but I am fascinated by it. I, I tend to agree with you. Whatever life form it is, is you know, I, I just don't think that we um, are totally alone. There has to be some other life forms, and of course, too, I've watched every episode of Star Trek from um, <laughs> beginning to the end, so I'm pretty biased about it. But I love this stuff. I actually enjoy reading it. Okay, that's my spiel. You know. You know, right where you are, you're over in Pace, Florida, but uh, that's a suburb almost of uh, Pensacola, Florida. And yeah, uh, I yeah. used to live in, in Santa Rosa County where you are, and uh, mm -hmm. I used to live in a little town called Gulf Breeze. That's two words, Gulf oh, yeah. Breeze. And you cross the, uh, the Pensacola Bay Bridge, and, and there you are, right in Gulf Breeze. And at the Gulf Breeze... Uh, Breeze side of the bridge, 
there is a parking lot. And that parking lot became known as the Gulf Coast, the Gulf Coast uh, Observatory of UFOs. And people would actually come out there every mm. evening, get their telescopes, and they would study the skies to see if they could see UFOs. <laughs> so, uh, oh my goodness. Yeah, you can ask people around town there. about the Gulf Breeze <laughs> being known as the uh, UFO capital of the Gulf Coast. And uh, I'll drive a lot of people. There. <laughs> yeah, and it's in that parking lot. There's a marina right next to it. I used to, yes. I used to live there, and I was based with Eastern, and I'd come home and cross the bridge, and and then I'd look very carefully on my way back to home at the Tiger Point <laughs> there in the Gulf Breeze. And uh, but at any rate, uh, Jim Harris, what are your thoughts about uh, about these uh, unidentified flying objects? Although I have never personally seen anything, yeah, I'm quite certain they do exist. There's been too many. There's been too many reports for me not to believe it. So, yep, I think they exist, whether I've ever seen them or not. Yeah, yeah. There's. Well, I think there's some cave drawings that <laughs> cave somebody drawings. did. Yes, years and years and years ago, where they show. Some kind of alien-looking thing with a with a fishbowl over their head, as to me. Yeah, that's true. That's true. I saw that. Mm-hmm. Yep. You know, you know, Jim. There are wonders of the world out there, like the pyramids and things like the Stonehenge, and and uh, uh, all over the world that uh, you wonder. The Aztecs uh, down in Mexico, the pyramids down there. And uh, some of those have been contributed to uh, the handiwork and are either the help of aliens that have visited this planet. So I'm sure you've read stories about that. But, uh, yeah, it's very interesting. Well, as heavy as these big blocks of rocks are, I don't think humans could have done that. Yeah. And they fit too tightly and closely together. Yeah. I saw, I saw some people trying to uh, some a little little clip on the computer about somebody trying to set up an obelisk. wasn't very big and not even very well not heavy compared to this other stuff, but they couldn't do it. Ah, it was un, it was impossible for them. All right. So a little a little rock goes a long way. You're trying to pick it up. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, that's our program for UFOs, and we have a few announcements here. I'd like to say, first of all, and not like to say, but it's sad to say that uh, we have lost uh, another uh, friend, uh, pilot, especially Jim Harris and I, who knew him pretty well. And and, uh, Jim, Jim Harris, would you tell us who recently passed away this past week? Yes. It's Charles E. Boswell. He was based in Atlanta. I knew him from there. I flew with him. I knew him as a good man, a good person, and a good friend. And he was, whenever he passed, when he went uh, went south there, uh, he was in Gulf Shores, Alabama, on 18 July, two days after his 89th birthday. His son, Mark, was formerly an EAL pilot and President Eastern with United Airlines, posted on Facebook under the search for the Silver Falcons. So, yeah, we lost another good man, a good person, a good pilot, and a good friend. So uh, I'm sad about news like this. 
Yeah, and I, I read that uh, that Charlie taught the uh, two boys, uh, Mark and his brother, and uh, uh, how to fly. And uh, so they became air, airline pilots as well. So, but uh, but uh, Charlie was a great guy. He was also in management with uh, uh, what's ATA Airlines up there in Indiana, I believe. Yeah, and, Indianapolis. Uh, yeah, and he was responsible for hiring a lot of the uh, Eastern pilots that had been. Uh, uh, without without jobs, when the airline shut down, he hired a bunch of uh, Eastern folks to fly uh, the 727s. I think J.B. Holder, Jim Holder, who's a host on this show also, may have been hired by Charlie. And But Charlie was a great guy, super nice guy. I knew him uh, well and never did fly with Charlie, but uh, always a friendly smile and a hello. And uh, he certainly will be missed. And uh, when you think about it, Neil, 99 and three quarters percent of the Eastern Airline pilots were great and wonderful people and fun to be around. They sure were. They sure were. It was always it was always a great pleasure to strap on my unit, put on my uniform and go strap on an airplane and go somewhere. Well said, Jim. It, It didn't matter why. It was just always fun. It was so good. I couldn't believe he paid me for it. (laughs) <laughs> yeah. I, I, to this day I still do it for nothing matter of fact I would pay them yeah just to do it I'm sure God, I'm, sure, job. I'm sure they listened to the voice cockpit voice recorder and they heard remarks like that we were sitting up there fat dumb and happy on a beautiful day and being served oh, yeah. by the great flight attendants of Eastern especially those uh, Mexican breakfast coming out of Mexico City, and, and oh, I would say, good. and oh, they yes. really pay us to do this job. It's amazing. That's what, that's what I always thought. <laughs> best job in the world. I'll tell you yeah. what. I think I think that Eastern Airlines are probably the best airline in the sky. Yeah. <laughs> if you think about it, all the flight crews, I never, all the flight crews got along well. Yeah, they, they always did. got along with the flight attendants well. Yeah. It was a great, great, great airline. What a, yeah. I'm so happy and lucky to have been the happiest day of my life when I went to work with Eastern Airlines. Well, and staying on that happy note, uh, we'd like to congratulate Lieutenant Amanda Lee of Moundsview, Minnesota, who will be the first woman to serve as a demonstration pilot with the Blue Angels Navy flight team. Although hundreds of women have served with the Blue Angels in a variety of capacities over the last 55 years, Lieutenant Amanda Lee will be the first woman to serve as a demonstration pilot. And each year, the Blue Angels select finalists to interview at the team's home base of Naval Air Station Pensacola. And during the week, the last couple of weeks, I think it was a couple of weeks ago, the Pensacola Beach Air Show, which I used to take my pontoon boat uh, from my home there in Gulf Breeze and mosey on down to Sabine Bay there between uh, Pensacola Bay and and Pensacola Beach and uh, observe the uh, Navy performance of the Blue Angels team. But during that beach show, uh, they they make a selection are made every year at the conclusion of that week and this year's Pensacola Beach Air Show, it took place, as a matter of fact, of July 6th and 9th in front of a record 
crowd that had formed to watch it. I sure wish I still had my pontoon boat and going out and watching those guys perform because they are precise. Congratulations, Lieutenant Lee, and we'll see you teammates over the skies of America. Okay. Uh, I won't, uh, I was going to ask Brenda to, to do a plug for the sky, uh, silver liners and I will do that. But first of all, I want to uh, say that I appreciate uh, Dick Borelli in sending some material that possibly we will be using in future shows. He sent me the whole uh, archive of all of the newsletters of the Silver Falcons. So uh, I got a story, uh, the, the child's witted story from that uh, newsletter of the Silver Falcons. So thanks, Dick, for sending that to me. And I hope that that will provide uh, some good shows here in the future. And uh, let's see, what else do we have? Uh, the Silverliners. Ah, the Silverliners. Can't talk enough about the Silverliners. Great group of flight attendants. And uh, there are over 70 airlines now uh, represented by the Silverliners. They were formed years and years ago, it seems like, but they were formed by... I think four Eastern flight attendants back in the golly fifties uh, or so, and um, and they've grown and grown, and now they're taking uh, membership from all airlines, and so now they're representing seventy uh, airlines that are members of the sil of the uh, Silverliners, uh, and you can just go to thesilverliners.org. That's our uh, a website, thesilverliners.org, and there you can find an application, especially if you are a flight attendant or you don't have to be a flight attendant to join that group. They have chapters all over the United States. Hopefully they'll be having chapters around the world, but uh, I'm an affiliate member, so you can join as an affiliate member because Brenda is the, is the editor of the magazine that comes out twice a year and she does a brilliant job of putting that out and I enjoy reading the stories of the flight attendants especially those that are told on the uh, pilots <laughs> especially but uh, <laughs> but uh, Brenda does a good job in editing putting that together uh, okay I'm going to turn it back over to uh, let's see is does, is Luann over there raising her hand that she wants to say something <laughs> Well, I did have a couple of UFA see I can't even talk today. Some UFO uh jokes that our listeners might be interested in hearing, but since we're so close to the, our time limit, how about maybe we just do them next week? Thank you, Luann. Thank you, Luann. All right, all right. Well, maybe next time. All right, we'll do that. Now, let's see, we're gonna we're going to fly this airplane and land it, and uh, I think, Margaret, you're up in the Los Angeles control tower, so uh, why don't you uh, put uh, the uh, UFO flight on the ground here? I'd be happy to. Flight 6-0, you're cleared to land on runway 28 or 28 right, wind 280 degrees at 10 knots. Roger Tyler. Hey, I've got lights at altitude and my left. Got any traffic reported, or is it a UFO? 
Well, it could be Delta landing on 28 left. I can assure you, though, we have no UFOs reported tonight. Thanks, guys. Uh, great show. Learned a lot about UFOs, and hopefully we'll see you next week. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you. See you, Neil. See you, Jen. See you. Thank you. They're taking you away and leaving me lonely. Silver wings slowly fading out of sight. Don't leave me, I cry. Don't take that airplane ride But you locked me out of your mind And left me standing here behind Silver wings Shining in the sunlight Roaring engines Headed somewhere in They're taking you away Leaving me lonely Silver wings Slowly fading out of